good morning to everyone in the Diocese of Orange and elsewhere in Southern California. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio on AM 1000. We're coming to you through the good offices of Immaculate Heart Radio today and every Thursday morning from 11 to noon from our studios on the campus of Christ Cathedral in Garden Grove. I'm Patrick Mott. We're going to start our show off today by talking about those other guys' investments that you <laughs> see up there in the sanctuary on Sunday. And these guys may still be a bit of a mystery to some of us, even though their numbers continue to grow. They're deacons, and they're one of three groups of ordained ministers in the Catholic Church, the other two being bishops and priests. The permanent diaconate has been a great success story since it was restored in the church nearly 50 years ago. And today, studies have shown that both deacons and the people they serve in their parishes report a very high level of satisfaction. And the growth in the number of permanent deacons has been dramatic. In 1975, for example, about 900 men were permanent deacons. Ten years later, that number was more than 7,200. And now get this, by 2010, there were 17,000 permanent deacons in the United States. Now, I'm going to call that a success story, and I think our first guest will agree. Deacon Frank Chavez is the director of the Office of the Diaconate for the Diocese of Orange and has been a deacon for how many years have you been a deacon? 30. 30 years as a deacon. There must be something about it you like. How would you account for the amazing growth in the diaconate since the late 60s? Probably the Holy Spirit, mainly. As you said, Patrick, the diaconate in the United States is alive and well and on fire. It, we answer a particular need. You know, people say that, well, we have deacons today because uh, there was a lack of priests. No, we have deacons today because there was a lack of deacons and what we represent. We represent the church's service sacramentalized. So you, as you said, you're right. You see us and on the altar, investments, but that's only part of it. What we need to be is the guys who take the grace of the altar to the streets and bring the needs of the streets to the altar. Well, in researching this, uh, I kept running across the word service all the Correct. time. Correct. Service, service. Diaconia means service. The, our symbol is the bowl and towel, Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. So our guys serve in the jails at homeless centers. Um, they use their job skills to help out the poor, to feeding programs, uh, assistance program, Catholic Charities, St. Vincent de Paul. Any place where there is a need, that's where we need to be. And again, we bring those needs to the altar and to the folks in the pews and make that connection for the church. Well, let's get a little personal here. How did you decide to become a deacon? Oh, my gosh. I always tell uh, people I kind of backed into it because I was only 34, 33 when I started formation. Mm-hmm. I was only 37 when I was ordained. I didn't think they'd pick me. In those days, my parish already had a deacon, and and I was so young, but I got picked. Bishop Johnson was our first bishop who ordained me. Right. And well, it, it's been a growth and joy since then. Well, what was your motivation? You're you're going along in your young adult life, and everything is pretty nice. And uh, one day, bingo, you start thinking about the diaconate. Actually, other people encouraged me. So ah. that's why I say I backed into it. But the motivation was to serve the church. I've always been close to it, mainly for my parents, my grandmother and mother. And it was a great way and it was new and exciting and my wife was on board completely and so we said yes and since then it's been learning learning more and more about what the diaconate is and falling in love with it 
in many ways, learning more what the vocation is, how, how important it is in today's church. Uh, I want to make a quick point here. We are talking about the permanent diaconate. Correct. There are two types of diaconate. Correct. There's the transitional diaconate, which priests go through on their way to becoming ordained priests. That is correct. And then there is the permanent diaconate, which that's you, us, which you represent. Mm-hmm. Well, describe a little bit about the period of formation for the permanent diaconate. Now, if you're going to be a priest, you uh-huh. are in formation fairly intensely, depending on uh, what type of priest you're going to be, for a number of years. And you go away to a seminary. That's right. Mm-hmm. So what's involved for a permanent deacon? In the Diocese of Orange, it's five years of formation, from being an, an inquirer, an aspirant, a candidate, and finally ordination. There's study, the academic piece. There's spiritual formation, the prayer piece, and then there's the ministry internship, which is the service piece. So there's three facets of it, pretty intense and a lot of time dedicated to study, to prayer, and to serving all those five years to get ready. Well, not all deacons are retired. Some are right. older and retired, but right. some are younger and hold down full-time jobs. Now, how does that dovetail with the period of formation? Here in the Diocese of Orange, the majority of our deacons have jobs. Mm-hmm. So it's very clear that your priority in formation and afterwards is your wife, your family, and your job. That's your priority. Your wives say, hey, you married me first <laughs> before the ordination. So they're always a good reminder. So we have to keep that in perspective, keep it in balance. That's why your wife has to be on board. A lot of times wives come to everything that we go to, all of the sessions, all of the classes, and they're an integral part of that formation. And I think that's one of the things that makes uh, deacons maybe a little more approachable yes. to a lot of parishioners. Yes. Uh, they will talk about family matters and Correct. marriage matters, and they're, they're talking to somebody who knows it from personal experience. Mm-hmm. We have a mortgage. We pay tuition. We, you know, all those things. We have teenagers. Those things that the folks in the pews can relate to. Is there a typical diaconate candidate, deacon candidate? Are they all over the map? They're all over the map, but we look for a humble person who's active in the church and is really dedicated to serving. Those three things. Who their pastor presents to us, that's the way we do it here in the Diocese of Orange. The pastors nominate them, and then we go through a selection period. And again, the wife has to be, if he's married, has to be an integral part of the whole process. Now, not many deacons are unmarried because there is, tell us about that. If a de- and we do have single guys who are deacons mm-hmm. um, here in the Diocese of Orange. In the class who were just ordained, there's two single guys. But at ordination, there's one difference in the ordination. They take a vow of celibacy. Right. Because the transitional guys, as you said, Patrick, the guys on their way to priesthood, they take the vow of celibacy, not at priest ordination, but at diaconate ordination. That's right. So our ordination is identical to theirs, the single guys, except for that one question. And there is a bit of a catch for the guys who are married. If a married deacon's wife Mm -hmm. predeceases him, what happens then? He cannot remarry. He has to live the rest of his life. Mm Mm-hmm. 
especially if he expects to continue as a deacon uh-huh. to live as a celibate. So we pray real hard that our wives will <laughs> yeah. be, stay healthy. I was going to say, you're, you're looking out for your wife's uh, absolutely. Good, good, good health absolutely. At, at, at all times. Mm-hmm. Well, we touched on this just a second ago, but I'd like to explore this a little further. Sure. How do parishioners relate to deacons as opposed to priests? This is not saying, you know, the priests cannot mm-hmm. do this, but there's just something special about a deacon. I think that's true because they know that we're married so we understand marriage lot married life and having teenagers having children running a household having a job as i said before not that priests can't understand those things but we live them and the, the folks can relate to us so when we preach those things come up hopefully in our preaching and the folks can relate to you know he's coming from the place that i'm at so Talk about the sacramental side of things. You get to perform sacraments as we well. Do. You don't just preach. You get to do uh, some sacramental work. Correct. At Mass, we preach, as you said, and proclaim the gospel, mm-hmm. read the intercessions. And you notice the deacon is the one that sends us forward. Go in peace, proclaiming the word. Go in peace, giving God the glory. So we, we're the ones that send folks out to serve. But we also can baptize, mm-hmm. witness marriages. Vigils, gravesides, and uh, our guys are very busy in those areas. Do you have a favorite job uh, sacramentally? I know a lot of deacons really enjoy uh, uh, officiating at weddings. Yeah, I do. You know, I kind of enjoy it all. I think a real special time always is baptisms, especially uh, babies. Yeah. I've been had the great joy and privilege of baptizing all five of my grandkids. Oh, that's fantastic! So it's a tremendous thing. So, but to enter the life into the couples at a significant part of their life. They're just starting their life with a baby. Maybe they're taking some steps back towards the church if they've been away. They begin to think important things. So that's a great time to be involved in their lives. There may be guys out there right now listening to us uh-huh. who say, gee, this sounds uh, this sounds okay. Sure. I think I might want to investigate this a little further. What would you tell them? I would tell them to talk it over with their pastor. Tell their pastor, you know, I'm really, I think I feel a tug here towards something, and then your pastor will connect them with me. If you have deacons in the parish, talk to them about it and their wives, and have your wife be a part of the conversation, too. And again, now they are looking at a five-year period Correct. of formation, Correct. but it's not necessarily back-breaking. It's, no. It is able, it's set up in such a way Correct. that it can be integrated Correct. into a life. Like classes are Monday and Wednesday evenings. Mm-hmm. The spiritual formation is a Sunday, one Sunday a month. There is a weekend retreat in the spring, mm-hmm. and then the hours of service are pretty much as they arrange them. For example, the first year is in the jails, and they do 30 hours of service in the jails, but they arrange that with our detention ministry folks. Great. Well, Frank, thank you. You're welcome. So much for taking time out to talk to us today. And if there, again, are any men listening who might be thinking about becoming a deacon, Frank is the guy to see after they contact their pastor and and explore it a little further. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be talking with Debbie Leverton about the kickoff of this year's Pastoral Services Appeal. This is Orange County Catholic Radio, AM 1000. Please stay with us.
the Orange County Catholic newspaper is now available for weekly home delivery. The official newspaper of the Diocese of Orange seeks to illuminate and animate the journey of faith for Catholics within the Diocese of Orange. Through timely sharing of news, commentary, and feature content in an engaging, accessible, and compelling format, please call 1-877-627-7009 or visit OCCatholic.com to subscribe. Good morning once again. We're back with Debbie Leverton, who is the Parish Stewardship Director for the Orange Catholic Foundation and its Pastoral Services Appeal Time again. All across the diocese, people are going to be seeing banners in their parishes and video presentations. They'll be hearing from their parish priests and others about what's going on with this year's appeal. We're going to get a little preview of it today. First of all, thanks very much for being with us on Orange Catholic Radio. The PSA, in the words of Bishop Van, and this is what he said, helps to support the ministries of our diocesan church and strengthens the mission of the church in all of our parishes and centers and helps to strengthen our bonds of communion and family in our local church. That's Bishop Van. Now, the overarching idea of the PSA is to do collectively what we can't do as individuals. Is that right? That's correct, Pat. As a diocesan church, all 62 parishes and centers make up our diocese, and many of the ministries and services that are funded through the PSA are specifically for the building up of the church, for supporting faith formation, for providing for seminarians, our deacons, our priests, for all the sacramental life of the church. So in that way, it encompasses the larger life of the church beyond the the individual parish boundary. Well, let's talk about some of these ministries and and communities, really, that are partially funded by the PSA. They are funded sometimes quite generously. Let's talk about a few. Okay. Well, this year, um, one of the ministries that we are uh, focusing on just for education purposes is the Catholic Deaf Community. The Catholic Deaf Community provides masks and sacramental preparation for um, hundreds of individuals in American Sign language. Each week the masses are provided out of Modern Day High School in the chapel. Um, This is a very important ministry that enables the deaf children and adults, but mostly their children that are there, to help them learn about their faith and become active members of the faith in the future years. So it's very important that way. And another one of the ministries that we are focusing on um, this year is the diaconate formation and support. Many of us are familiar with the deacons that serve in our parishes, and we become very close to them and depend on them for the important service that they provide. The diaconate formation office really provides recruitment, classes, formation for deacons. They go through a four-year formation period. It also provides support for their uh, spouses and their families along their journey of of serving as deacons. So that's a very important ministry as well that's funded uh, through the PSA and definitely um, benefits each and every one of our parishes and centers. Another one of our ministries that's that's funded through the PSA and I think it's close to many people's hearts is Catholic school tuition assistance. Each year and especially this coming year it's actually increased a bit. It's $1,025,000 that will be provided 
provided in tuition assistance. Um, this money is provided um, directly to the schools to give to families. So the school actually helps to determine which families are in need and at what level of, of need and support that they would receive. So a million dollars each year from the PSA is used to help support families who could otherwise not be able to have their children in Catholic schools. That makes a big difference in their lives. Well, this money that's being funneled into these ministries, this is not something where a donor is going to see the money go flying out of their wallet and never see the results again. It's going to come back to a lot of ministries that are very close to them, that will benefit them very directly. That's right, and they can just look around their own parish and see the uh, benefit that they receive from these ministries that really help support the life of the parish and their parishioners there. We do try to make every effort to show the impact of the money that's given through the PSA, through the Orange County Catholic and other venues that we make available uh, on the website for the Orange Catholic Foundation. We provide impact stories um, so that you can go there and become more familiar with exactly what the money is being used for. Well, one of the really great things about the way the PSA is structured has to do with parish rebates. This is something that is coming boomeranging right back to every parish according to the amount of uh, money they contribute. Tell me about that. Right. Each year, every parish and center receives an assigned goal for the PSA, and that is based on their regular offertory that they collect during the year. It's a formula that is used. So the way the PSA is structured is a win-win for the parishes and the bishops' ministries. For instance, this year, the allocations total $6.22 million. The parishes' goals all add up to that $6.22 million. Any money cash received over that goal for each individual parish or center is returned to the parish on a monthly basis. So they get a monthly rebate check each month for everything over their goal. Typically, the parishes do very well with earning rebates, and they are very motivated to um, really reach beyond their goal so that they can really bring these rebates back to their parish for their own significant projects. For instance, this year I'm projecting there will be somewhere close to $4.5 million that will go back to the parishes and centers. So overall, the campaign, our goal is, and I'm hoping that we reach um, $11 million this year or close to that. We have gone beyond that in previous years at times. So even over and above the $6.2 million, that's just for the, the bishop's ministries, the other 4.5 to $5 million would be just for parish rebates. When people think about charitable giving, sometimes they hesitate because they may think their money might not be put to the work they intend, but will be swallowed up by administrative costs, bureaucracy. One of the great things, again, about the PSA is that this doesn't happen, does it? No, it doesn't. And we're very careful about the administrative costs that are part of the PSA program. To date, it equals about 7.5% of the total dollars raised, including the parish rebates. And we really work hard to keep it no more than that. And we've been able to do it over the years. So I think compared to a lot of charities that we're really able to show that we keep the, the cost down while 
at the same time providing a great service to the parishes because the Orange Catholic Foundation in the administering of this program pays for all the printing, the postage statements, everything that goes on to collect the money from our very generous donors in the parishes. So we work hard to keep those expenses down. Excellent. Well, you threw out a couple of numbers a little earlier. I want to reiterate them for a second just to let them sink in a bit. Also, I'd like to toss out a few more statistics about the diocese that I think people may not know. These numbers are significant. The PSA hopes to raise $10,722,000. That's the goal. And as you said, four and a half million of that is projected to be returned to parishes in the form of rebates. That's a significant number. Now, there are more than 189,300 registered families in the diocese, which includes 62 parishes and Catholic cultural centers. Also, there are more than 12,300 elementary school students in Catholic schools, and there are more than 6,500 Catholic high school students and nearly 16,300 young people in youth ministry. Now, finally, here's a significant number that has been high for a number of years. Catholics make up 43% of the total population of Orange County. That's nearly 1.32 million people. Now, in the midst of this, this makes the PSA a very significant event. Yes, it does. We have the opportunity to reach out to all of these registered families throughout Orange County. This is done through their own parish. Um, Their pastor will be asking them to participate. Even for those who may not be at Mass every Sunday, there's mailings that go out. There's other ways of reaching out to every Catholic in our county that they could participate in the PSA and help support these ministries that do make a huge impact. It is amazing. We try to increase our numbers and try to get it more out there so that everyone will understand the impact that's possible through this, this program. And so each year we really try different strategies to reach out and get more and more Catholics involved in the PSA and also at the same time to get them involved in their own parish as well. Well, the PSA has been very successful in the past, I know. How, how many years has it been going on now? Do you, do you happen well, to know? The uh, PSA was called something else at the beginning when it was Bishop Johnson, when Bishop Johnson first started our diocese in 1976. I think the PSA started in 78, and it was called Unity and Growth, and the purpose of it was to help um, buy land for expansion for parishes in our diocese. Over the years, it's changed its focus a little bit, and um, probably for the last, I would say, 15 years, it's been called the Pastoral Services Appeal, which pastoral services means it's funding services that directly serve the parishes. So pastoral services, meaning those ministries that directly impact and support the parishes. And it has been quite successful since being called that, right? Since since, since funding ministries. It has. I think people can really relate to the ministries and see the benefit that it provides, um, even at their own parish. So we hope to tell the story that shows them how they can really make an impact in people's lives. It's not just going towards programs expenses, but it really helps impact people's lives, and I think that that is um, something that is good for people to be interested in and involved. Well, Debbie Leverton, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for all the good information about the Pastoral Services Appeal. Please watch for more information about the appeal in the current issue of Orange County Catholic, the diocesan newspaper, and in your home parish. If you would like to find out a little bit more about it online, please go to orangecatholicfoundation.org. 
We'll come back shortly with a love story for Valentine's Day that reads like a fairy tale. You're going to want to stay with us for this, trust me. This is Orange County Catholic Radio, AM 1000. County Catholic Radio is made possible by the generous support to the Orange Catholic Foundation, an independent not-for-profit organization raising funds to support the mission of the Catholic Church in the Diocese of Orange. To learn more about their vision, their mission, and about upcoming events, visit online www.orangecatholicfoundation.org. That's orangecatholicfoundation.org. Welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Patrick Mott, and with me in the studio is Miranda MD, who has had, let us say, a unique past few months. I almost don't want to give this away right at the top, but I will say that this story involves Miranda's upcoming wedding in October. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. To a man she has referred to as my knight in shining armor, only in this case, the guy actually does wear shining armor, at least on more formal occasions. Let's pick it up from there. I'll start off by saying that Miranda is a parishioner at St. Bonaventure Church in her hometown of Huntington Beach, and she works in wealth management marketing for Wells Fargo. And back in October of 2013, she and her mom were on vacation in Rome when something very unexpected happened. What was it? Well, I fell in love twice. I fell in love with Rome, and I fell in love with the man who I'm going to marry. And he is? Jonathan Benaghi, and he's a Swiss guard at the Vatican. Now, you've got to tell us how this happens. Not everybody goes to the Vatican and falls in love with Swiss guards. What's the story on that? So my mom and I were on a three-week vacation in Italy, um, spent the first part in Rome, and then traveled all throughout Italy, and really ended the trip the last five days in Rome. And it was the night before we were flying back home. And I had some questions that I wanted to know about moving to Italy, maybe working at the Vatican, like what would that look like? What type of opportunities are there? And my mom said, well, the Swiss guards are, you know, they know everything, so that's who you need to talk to. Well, we wasted a couple hours in the afternoon. We got kind of directed to the wrong place, um, all to say that I was tired and frustrated and wanted to just go back to the hotel because we had an early flight the next day. So we're walking by to catch the shuttle, and we were going to pass by Santana Gate, which is the main gate where all the Swiss guards pass out tickets for the papal audiences. And my mom said, Miranda, you have to go talk to the Swiss guard. We're not going to leave here until you get the information you want, so just do it. So I hesitated a bit, but listened to my mom, which we all know moms know best. Always listen to your mother. Yes. And proceeded to walk up to um, the St. Anne Gate, and Jonathan was standing there. So I asked him my questions. He was very helpful, very um, charming and kind. And I just remembered kind of stepping back and watching him for a couple minutes interact with all the people and bouncing back between five different languages. And he just treated people with such respect. And I was very moved and really 
grew an admiration for him from that moment on. And there was something very special about him. Now, this was the day you are flying home. Or you're flying home the next day, right? Yes. Next morning. Yes. Now, this was this some sort of bolt from the blue sort of stuff uh, that uh, that you read about? Or uh, it was it something that kind of grew on you over the course of days? Or you, you ended up going home and exchanging a lot of emails, yeah? Yes. We exchanged information. And I walked away, and I jokingly told my mom, oh, I think I just fell in love. But, you know, we're going back home. I mean, what are the chances? We're gonna, we live across the world from each other. He's a Swiss guard. And so there was something very special. But, you know, me thinking of reality, just the chances of something to happen, I thought was slim. Well, fast forward a little bit now, and you are going back to Rome for the canonizations of the two popes, John Paul II and John XXIII. By this time, you've had a chance to exchange quite a bit of communication with Jonathan. So you're anticipating now. Yes, we were in contact for those five to six months over email and you know some phone calls, getting to know each other a little bit better. And I was already going back for the canonizations. Um, and so he had a lot of stuff planned for us to do in my free time and in his free time. So it was, there was a lot of anticipation going into the trip, just, you know, knowing that I spent 10 minutes talking to him and that this trip we would be spending more time together and really to see kind of where it would go. Were you together for the canonization ceremony or did he uh, have duties to perform? He had to work, unfortunately, Uh or fortunately, but we got a pretty good seat and actually one of the priests who was with us got to concelebrate the mass so Jonathan got him a special ticket. So now he is relatively well connected you've mentioned uh, yes. ar- around the Vatican you've discovered. Yes he is. Um, he's knows everybody. Everybody knows him and I learned that very quickly just walking around and going on you know private tours with him and really I mean I've seen every inch of the Vatican so Everybody knows him, and he has a very good reputation. And you mentioned that he has been a Swiss guard for four years, which is unusual, and that uh, the the hitch, I guess you'd call it, for Swiss guards is usually less than that. He is now training some of the uh, younger men, correct? Yes. The typical assignment, initial duty, is two years. Now, if they extend it, it's either if they want to stay longer or if they get requested to stay longer. And in his case, it was on both ends. They wanted him to stay longer. Um, in the mil- in the Swiss military, he's actually a, a major, so he has a lot of responsibilities. And he does now train a lot of the new guards that are entering into the Swiss guards. Now, the Swiss military is compulsory, right, for uh, pretty much every male Swiss citizen who reaches a certain age, right? Yes, at the age of 18. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and he is he is a major in the, the yes, Swiss military. Yes, he just got promoted to a major. Oh, well, congratulations fantastic. to him. Yeah. Well, now, in your, in your second trip here, you're back there for the canonizations, you get a chance to spend a little more time together. Do your feelings grow and develop during this time? Yes. I knew within a week that he was the one, and so did he. <laughs> And, and, you, and so you, both, we, you both told each other that. Yes, we did. You know, when people say it's how do you, how do you know with the limited time that we've spent together, even in the last year, um, but we, at this point in our lives, I've had my list of requirements, so a lot of things that I'm looking for, um, and as well as he. And so, I mean, as soon as you get into really deep conversation and um, faith, which is number one for me, and sharing our Catholic faith, it's 
you know, we knew instantly that we were meant for each other. Was there a formal proposal? Not yet, actually. Oh, you're still waiting on he this. He is, it's a little bit of a unique situation. So he is moving here uh, next month and he has not met my father yet. So he wants to meet him and ask him first in person. Oh, okay. This but, is very old world formality. Yeah. That's nice. Well, now we have a, a third party kind of working his way into this, not necessarily as a principal actor in the romance, but tell us about the Pope. When did you first get to meet him? The third trip. So we'll fast forward from May, three months later, I went back. Um, now this trip was primarily to, Jonathan had expressed wanting to take me to Switzerland to meet his family. So that was the primary reason for that trip, to meet his family, friends. And so it was that trip that he surprised me the day before I was flying back home. We were at dinner, and I'll never forget. <laughs> he said, okay, you have to be ready at 5 a.m. tomorrow morning. And I'm thinking, my flight's not till noon. Why do I have to be up at 5? And he's like, you're going to a private mass with Pope Francis at 7 a.m. And I almost fell out of my chair. <laughs> <laughs> but he loves to surprise me. It's That was one of the several really great surprises that he's done. So I, I, the next morning was up by 5 a.m. and was able to go to a private mass at Santa Martha with Pope Francis and about 25 other people. For those of you who've just joined us, we're here with Miranda Emdy. Uh, she's telling us all about her romance in Rome and her meeting with Pope Francis at a private mass in his residence. It was in the Doma Sancte Marta, right? Uh, yes. And the, the chapel is underneath his actual residence. Yes. Tell us about that. Oh, it was um, an incredible once-in-a-lifetime experience that I'll never forget. We you know, lined up outside and basically were let in one by one. Uh, I took our seats. I was sitting near the back and Pope Francis came in shortly after and offered the entire mass. And it was it was one of those moments where you just want to pinch yourself. I kept thinking, oh my, I can't believe I'm really here. And even just being in his presence, he really is what you think he's very humble and just has such a kind gentle spirit and you know we talk about like the language of love and I always it reminds me of the language of the spirit because I don't speak Italian so I didn't really necessarily follow everything he was saying but you pick up on his spirit I mean it's very you feel the Holy Spirit there so. now, now you met him personally in a receiving line after the mass right you brought along a couple of rosaries one for you and one for your mom and he blessed them right tell us about that Yes. So after the Mass, he sat with the group for about 10, 15 minutes, and we all sat in prayer, silent prayer. And then we all were able to meet him one-on-one -on -one after the Mass. So I was towards the end, so I got, I think, a couple more minutes. But we got to meet him individually, spent a couple minutes with him. And unfortunately, with the language barrier, we couldn't say a lot. But he understood me, and he was just such a such a kind soul. And um, I did have two rosaries with me that he blessed, one for me and one for my mom. 
that she says she will take with her to the grave. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is the day you fly home. You, you are in a morning mass with Pope Francis, and you have to turn right around and head for the airport and fly home. I mean, that's quite a day. Yeah, I didn't want to leave. It's hard to leave. We're going to be back in just a bit. The best is, uh, in this little story in any case, may be yet to come. And you'll tell us all about that in just a minute as we come back. The Orange Catholic Foundation provides you the opportunity to leave a personal legacy and support your passion with our Catholic faith. A legacy gift is a gift that comes from your financial or estate planning. Gifts could come from appreciated securities or stock, real estate, a retirement plan, or life insurance. Some donors are in a position to make a gift during their lifetime. Others make the gift as a bequest in their will. Plan gifts can offer many benefits to you, including tax benefits or the potential for returned income. The Orange Catholic Catholic Foundation offers many ways to support the Catholic causes you care about. No matter the amount of gift you make, they have a giving option available to best support your passion within our Catholic faith. Contact the Orange Catholic Foundation today to learn about the Light of Christ Legacy Society and how your planned gift can make a difference. Reach them on the web at orangecatholicfoundation.org. That's orangecatholicfoundation.org. They're here to help you serve your Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange. The Orange County Catholic Newspaper is now available for weekly home delivery. The official newspaper of the Diocese of Orange seeks to illuminate and animate the journey of faith for Catholics within the Diocese of Orange. Through timely sharing of news, commentary, and feature content in an engaging, accessible, and compelling format, please call 1-877-627-7009 or visit OCCatholic.com to subscribe. We're back on Orange County Catholic Radio, and for you people out there who are particular fans of Valentine's Day, have we got a story for you. We're in the studio here with Miranda Emdy from Huntington Beach, and she has already gone through the most wonderful story about her going to Rome, falling in love with a Swiss guard, meeting his family in Switzerland, planning a wedding, and attending a private papal mass in Pope Francis's residence. You think it's not going to get any better, but yes, there's more. Uh, and she's going to tell us about that now. You came back again to Rome last December over the Christmas holidays, and tell us what happened on that trip. Yes. So this trip uh, primarily was to look at venues and churches for the upcoming wedding this fall. Mm -hmm. We were looking originally at around Thanksgiving or beginning of December for me to go for, uh, you know, 12 to 14 days. And we're trying to work it around Jonathan's schedule as well. So, you know, throughout discussion, we agreed that actually Christmas was the best time to go. And I, we both thought it'd be really special to spend Christmas together in Rome, his last Christmas there as a Swiss guard as well. So I booked my flight. It wasn't until you know weeks later that he surprised me yet again and told me that he had requested my name to the head of pontifical celebrations to be a lector at the upcoming Christmas Mass that Pope Francis was doing in St. Peter's. Now, this is the Christmas Eve midnight Mass, right? Yes. And, of course, no one's watching. Right. Only millions of people. <laughs> so... 
I flew in two days later, found out that it, because I still, you know, going there, I'm like, okay, am I really going to do the reading? Is this really happening? And so it wasn't until, you know, I get there a couple days later, Jonathan's like, okay, rehearsal time is 8 a.m. on Christmas Eve morning. You're doing the second reading in English. And so the reality set in that, okay, this is really happening. So Christmas Eve, we had the morning rehearsal. And I just, I remember looking around St. Peter's, just again, that kind of moment of you want to pinch yourself. Is this, am I really here right now? And so we had the rehearsal, you know, went through where we're going to sit, how we're going to, how we're supposed to walk up and bow and did a, a dry run of the reading. I was very nervous. So the reality started to really set in, but I just wanted to savor the moment and um, just enjoy it. Now, for those of you who have never been to St. Peter's, this is not your little chapel around the corner. This is huge, right? Yes. It's every time I go and walk in, you have that feeling of it's you're just in absolute awe of the size of it. And, and, and this particular mass was celebrated on St. Peter's altar beneath that immense baldacchino by Bernini. So uh, huge statues on either side. So the the space is almost magnified, isn't it? Yes, it is. So we we had a second rehearsal right before the Christmas Mass, a couple hours before. And this was, so we're already, you know, dressed up and did another dry run. And again, it was that the nervousness definitely kicked in on a whole nother level, just realizing and looking around and, you know, people are starting to arrive and all the musicians and all the cardinals. And it's like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. But um, and then, you know, the Christmas mass started. And again, when we got called up to, to start walking up together, it was I felt my heart beating through my chest and I just remember telling myself, okay, God is with you. Holy Spirit, take over. Don't trip on your dress and don't trip on your words. And thankfully, the Holy Spirit did come through. For those of you just joining us, we are with Miranda Emdy, who is telling us about how she performed the second reading at the Christmas Eve Midnight Mass last Christmas in St. Peter's Basilica. Now, you're up there, you're reading, you're getting ready to read. Are you thinking, okay, I've done this before, I can do this, I can do this? Or are you thinking, oh, this is overwhelming? The latter. So I don't, I'm not a lector at my parish, so I don't, I'm not an experienced lector. But yes, I was extremely nervous walking up, heart beating through my chest, and I remember walking up about to, you know, prepare to read and just look. We're not supposed to look up, by the way. Well, I looked up right before I was about to read and seeing just the sea of people and all the cardinals right in front. You know, I see Pope Francis on my left in the corner of my eye and just said, "Okay, Holy Spirit, take over. That's about all you can do at that point. Yeah, but it was I felt so honored and humbled and blessed. I can't think of a a more special opportunity to be able to deliver the word of God at such a, you know, a mass for our Lord's birth in St. Peter's with the Pope. It was just an incredible 
experience of a lifetime. And uh, when you were not reading, you had quite a vantage point, right? Yes, yes. We were in the VIP section, right up in the second row, right behind the, the main altar. And were you sitting with Jonathan at the time? No, we, the lectors and everyone participating in the Mass uh, sat together. Um, Jonathan and my good friend Joanne were on the left side in the other VIP section. Wow. Well, now, all those people in St. Peter's were not all the people that were actually watching you, as you found out later afterwards. Tell us about that. Right. So we, after the Mass, you know, we're walking out and all excited and just, you know, on cloud nine. It was such a beautiful Mass. I tell people it was it was like a taste of heaven to me. I, that's the best way I can describe it. Um, and we're walking out into, into St. Peter's Square, and I it didn't even dawn on me that the St. Peter's Square was filled with people. So, I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people. They had the big screens up, and before I knew it, I mean, that people were coming up to me left and right and asking, oh, you did, this, you did the English reading, you did such a great job, can we take a picture with you? So it was just cool to, I mean, get such support and you know, hear that feedback from all the people that were out in St. Peter's Square watching. And afterwards, you and Jonathan uh, went uh, to a restaurant nearby, just had a nice dinner and relaxed, right? Yes. And it was a, it was a nice way to end, or to start, actually, a Christmas day. Uh, quite a bit more than 15 minutes of fame there. Yeah. <laughs> guess so. <laughs> well, now, when you got home, what do you tell your friends back at work, back at church? I mean, you, you've been living a fairy tale here. What do, you, what do you tell them? What did they tell you? I tell them, I mean, everyone is so excited, and every, that's the most common thing I get is, I mean, I've been talking to people at, like, that work at clothing stores because it somehow comes up, and everyone somehow, I mean, the story's out there, my friends of friends and people I don't even know, and everyone says, oh, my gosh, this is like a fairy tale. This is unbelievable. And the one thing that I don't want to ever forget is that it's, only God could make this happen, and he really, I mean, Jonathan is a gift in my life, and meeting the Pope and all these things that we've talked about are gifts from him, and I'm so glad that I have listened to him and I've stayed faithful in his plan because he he really does have the best plan for everybody and for all of us, no matter what stage in life, and it's better than what we could ever expect. When you have a quiet moment alone and you sit down and you reflect back on all this and you think that it happened in a little more than a year, uh, for a year and a half ago, none of this was in your life. Does it kind of give you pause? Does it surprise you? Yes. I still I still have those moments of wanting to pinch myself because <laughs> everything's happened so fast and it's it really does feel like a dream at some moments, but I'm just, I'm very humbled and blessed and I I couldn't be happier. And I'm guessing uh, you feel a bit like a Vatican insider, not that you're you're part of the courier or anything like that, but you uh, have done a lot of things at the Vatican and around the Vatican that uh, most people will never get to do. You've met people that most people will never get to meet. Uh, so the Vatican has got to start feeling a little bit like home. It does. It does. That's exactly what it feels like. Um, it does feel like my second home at this point. I've met a lot of 
a lot of the Swiss guards, um, Jonathan's friends, a lot of you know bishops, some cardinals, um, monsignors there that that are work at the tribunal. I mean, so it's been incredible to meet all the people and already establish relationships there as well. Well, Miranda, great congratulations on your upcoming wedding in October. Uh, and if you want to see uh, a couple of pictures of Miranda in Rome uh, and Jonathan, uh, pick up a copy of uh, this week's Orange County Catholic. They are featured prominently. It's been wonderful having you on the show. I know our listeners join in wishing you and Jonathan all the best. And that's it for another edition of Orange County Catholic Radio. Please join us again next Thursday at 11 a.m. for another hour of good talk and intriguing topics. You're tuned to Immaculate Heart Radio, AM 1000. I'm Patrick Mott.